Hi everyone, welcome to Unplugged by Good Bets, where we provide the latest tips, strategies, and straightforward advice to underdog entrepreneurs and anyone who wants to leave a legacy by launching and growing a thriving social enterprise. I'm Nicole Jarbo from the Good Bets Group, and I'll be your host as we dive into the world of successful social entrepreneurship. Our episodes will be a hodgepodge. Some days we'll answer your most urgent startup questions, and others will interview founders you should know but we'll always provide practical and unfiltered advice to help you build a better venture faster. Hey everyone, super happy you're here. I'm excited to have Sam Batten here, founder and CEO of Colorado Youth Congress. Uh, We're gonna chat today about what it's like to take the plunge, start your own social entrepreneurship venture, some of his successes and maybe not successes. So I'm super, super privileged to have him here. Uh, Sam, how's it going? Hey, Jarbo. Thank you for having me. Of course. And for all of you that don't know, Sam and I have known each other for about 10 years now, and it's probably been six or so years since we last talked. So this is a catch up for everyone. It's true. Uh, But this is not about me. So Sam, for those people out there that don't know you, tell us who you are and what you do. So my name is Sam Batten, as you said. I'm based in Denver. I grew up here. Um, and I'm the founder and CEO of the Colorado Youth Congress. We work with high school students all over the state in order to lead civic change. And so we have about 250 members spread across 30 different high schools. And our students come together uh, and they form campaigns in order to change organizations and systems to advance justice. Awesome. Thank you, Sam. Tell me a little bit about what advancing justice means. So we know, I mean, I don't have to tell you that the world we're living in is unjust. We have an insane amount of race, economic disparity in this country. Um, You know, when you just look at some numbers like the the racial wealth gap, you know, white families, the median white families have about $140,000 of, of median net wealth, whereas for black families, it's about 1400 And Latino families, it's just a little bit more. Um, you know, you look at everything from education outcomes to health outcomes, criminal justice outcomes, we are living in a very unjust society. Um, and our education system, and speaking as, uh, you know, from the perspective of a former high school teacher, our K through 12 system is not allowing or preparing students to solve these deep systemic issues. Um, and so our students in our program will come together. They talk about the issues that are impacting them. And we have kids from all different areas of Colorado, all different racial and socioeconomic identities. And they're coming to talk as young people, what are the issues impacting them? Um, and they'll sell, settle on an issue and form a campaign. And the, the campaign is really designed to change systems. Um, so whether or not that's you know within education or climate change, we have a group working on mental health, on voting access, voting rights. Um, you know, you, you name it. Our students are leading the way in terms of changing systems. That's really incredible. I feel like I've been thinking a lot about politics, how to get involved, and I feel like generally I'm at a loss <laughs> how to do that. And so, well, actually, let's back up. I want to put a pin in that because I'm curious to know how you got into this. Okay, so my background, you know, I grew up in Arvada, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver. And 
it's a segregated upper middle class white suburb, you know, where all the people look the same. It's like cookie cutter houses, all the houses look the same. Um, and so my awareness of, um, of injustice or racism in the country was just limited to my experience. Uh, and so as a kid, you know, uh, I didn't, you know, growing up as a white kid, you don't really think much about your race, but, um, on the other hand, I had a, you know, an experience with, um, a personal experience with tragedy at an early age really I think shaped my path. I was a teenager when my mom died from a opioid overdose and, this is back before um, this is back before it was a national crisis. You know, in 2001, my mom had passed away from an opioid overdose, and so as a teenager, I'm um, starting to trying to understand what happened. And uh, you know, after doing some, you know, looking into it, she was overprescribed by her doctors uh, opiates. And so here I was, this teenager, sort of pissed at the healthcare system, at her doctors, but no real outlet at all to channel that energy and frustration. You know, I tried, I joined uh, student council, national honor society, you name it. And there was no real organization that was taking young people who were experiencing an issue and then helping them channel that energy into changing systems for the better. Um, so that led me to be a teacher. I wanted to be, um, you know, I wanted to provide young people what I didn't have a chance to change the world around them. And so I, um, I moved to New Orleans in 2011 to start teaching at an alternative high school. And, you know, in New Orleans, there is a lot of students that were overage and behind in credits. And so uh, I was a founding teacher. Uh, we started an alternative high school program designed to sort of accelerate the process of students' education so that they could graduate by the time they aged out of the system. And... And I know you know what New Orleans is like, but it's an incredibly unequal place. The child poverty rate for black children in New Orleans is 65%. And for white kids, it's 1%. Um, you know, the the life expectancy in Lake Lakeview, um, which is a wealthy white area, is 15 years higher than in Central City, which is a, a black community. So... Um, you know, I was just confronted as a teacher, as a young white teacher, not really from New Orleans. I was confronted with the real uh, effects of racism and the legacy of slavery. And I was frustrated. I was pissed because, you know, I was, my kids were literally dying from gun violence. And here I was, a math teacher, trying to teach a parabola, like how to solve for X on a damn parabola. You know, it was so disconnected from students' lived experiences and... Um, you know, that just drove me to try to do things differently. I, I did my best to get students involved in the, in the political sphere. So we had students testifying at city council on housing and gun violence issues. And that really saw like that proved to me, you know, the power of youth voice and, um, and made me start thinking about what I wanted to do as a career, you know, so I moved back home to Colorado after 2016, you know, in 2016, knowing that this was my community here in Denver and, um, and moved back home in 2016. I ended up working for a politician for about nine months and hated it and then started CYC in November of 2017. And take me back to New Orleans for a minute. I'm curious, did you, did you confront any resistance 
from people in your education community or maybe your personal networks as you were trying to elevate the voices of some of these students? Because, I mean, yes, I'm familiar with New Orleans, and I think not only is it segregated and all the things that you mentioned in terms of the disparities between quality of life, um, but sometimes it felt like living there um, that people were not as engaged or were putting up barriers to having young black, you know, having black youth speak up. Did you experience any of that as you were working with them? Yes and no. I think yes. Yes, from some likely places and some unlikely places. You know, some of the, there was certainly some, some, um, I wouldn't call it resistance, but I would call it uh, like diminishing, you know, like, oh, that's cute. Like you have your students coming and speaking at a city council member or like a city council meeting. That's cute. But, you know, let us do adult things. Um, so there was that. I would also say some, some weirdly enough, there was some resistance from within the education community because education reform as it is now is so focused on academics, you know, thinking that it's like a college or bust environment. And if you're not um, focusing on literacy or math or test scores in order to get you into college and you're doing the wrong thing. And I was taking a little bit different tech, not to say that my, I, I wasn't preparing my students for college, but we were trying to, I was trying to make the curriculum relevant to their lives and their lived experience. And that wasn't necessarily the hard academic skills in math that was written into my curriculum. So there was certainly like little bit of pushback from administration and um, just from the larger education community of, you know, if you're not preparing your students directly for college, in other words, if you're not preparing them to succeed on things like the ACT, then what are you doing? And um, so I would say there was a little bit of uh, a pushback from that in that area. That's really interesting to hear. A quick story I will share about teaching in New Orleans. Um, I was at a school and we were teaching Maya Angelou's uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And I really wanted to talk about themes of internalized racism, institutionalized racism, just because I had studied those things in the past and I knew they were really eye-opening for me as someone who is mixed, um, who identifies as Black, um, and predominantly has been in mostly white spaces. I remember trying to advocate for being able to, to weave that in to what I was teaching in the curriculum. And I mean, the lengths I had to go to get something that seems so relevant and important when you're teaching pretty much 100% students of color, I just didn't get it. I really, really didn't get it. So what you said about the sort of college or bus mentality really resonates with me. And um, I wanna dig into a little bit, uh, piggybacking off of this, you know, what does success look like with the students that you were working with in your eyes? And I think for me, uh, wanting to teach about those themes around racism was about really preparing them for the world they were gonna go into, even if my administration didn't see it the same way. And so I'm curious about how you thought about success and how you positioned that maybe against the college-going culture. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I will get to what success looks like, but I do want to mention that I think a lot of the 
that call quote unquote college going culture and no no excuses school philosophy is run and perpetuated by white leaders in the education space um, who either don't understand their role in advancing issues of racial justice or are ignorant you know willingly um, and so I think there's there's definitely a correlation there between white leadership and white people who hold power in the education system and the lack of of cultural relevance of the you know of making sure that the school experience is matching what students are experiencing in their world in their in their in their lives outside of school um and you know yeah let me stop you right there too because i actually want to hear your take um, on what no excuses actually is and looks like for the folks who are listening who aren't familiar with no excuses schools or zero tolerance policies um, I'd love for you to just like paint a picture for them. Okay, so the term "no excuses" started in the early '90s by a charter school called KIPP. Um, KIPP started in Texas and then spread pretty fast nationally. And it's really a way of doing school of saying, you know, it doesn't. Um, you might have struggles outside of school. You might be living in poverty. You might have um, violence in your home or around your home. You might. Um, you know, be subject to discrimination in your communities, but that's no excuse for achieving at a high level. And so the way that plays out in the school is that, you know, it's really strict um, behavior standards, really strict um, uniform standards, and exclusionary discipline. In other words, when kids, quote unquote, mess up, or they break the rules, they're then taken out of their learning environment and either suspended inside the school, suspended outside the school, or sometimes expelled. Um, and so it's, you know, I would call it militaristic uh, in terms of the, the focus on order, you know, and rules-based culture, um, compliance. And so, yeah, the way, I mean, I was at a school that was a charter network. Um, it was the only high school. The other schools in this network were K through eight, and they were very much no excuses. And we tried opening a school based on a compliance culture of like, you know, here I was, this 22 year old, brand new teacher, white from Denver, teaching all black students in New Orleans, trying to, you know, my very first week, I'm like, <clears throat> I need your eyes on me. And at a level zero, and my students are like, what the hell is a level zero? You know, and so I start counting down. I need you silent in three, two, one. And it was uh, it was a show of it was supposed to be a show of authority that I ran the classroom. But really, what it was is um, a. I mean, it, it just showed that I didn't know how to control a classroom. Ultimately, that I was trying to use force instead of relationships. Um, I could go on and on. I have I've had experience. I had experience teaching these types of schools, both in New Orleans and now in Denver. And there's just outrageous amounts of suspensions and expulsions for really minor things. Um, it also correlates to, um, yeah, I mean, the students that are that are struggling outside of school is not really addressing their issues, and it's just punishing them for coming in with with things that need to be addressed. Um, yeah, it's a main. It's a it's a major. Uh, it's a major issue in my mind uh, that that needs to be addressed for sure. Yeah, that's that's a totally different podcast episode, but we'll we'll definitely do that 
and we can all share stories of success and miserable failures um, in the No Excuses system in New Orleans. So everyone stay tuned for that. It's going to be terrible. Um, all right, so let me jump back to uh, success for the students you worked with. And you started to allude to it actually a little bit. So I want to go back there and just ask you, you know, for these students that you were starting to build relationships with that were seemingly so different than you, how did you start to view those relationships and what was, you know, sort of the ideal uh, of success for them? Yeah, so I can speak to the, you know, the, of the Colorado Youth Congress and what we view as the types of leaders that we're trying to build. And really that comes down to a couple things. One is something we call civic agency. Like, can you take, can you look at a big problem like racial disparities in educational outcomes, like we talked about, or climate change, or the mental health crisis? You know, Colorado has the highest teen suicide rate in the country. Can you take a big, complex problem like that and know how to tackle it? That's the primary way that we define success. Are students able to take a big problem like that to break it down into its system, you know, the system that holds that problem in place and then create a, you know, a plan in order to, to, um, to begin to solve that problem. The other thing is around social capital, you know, um, are students equipped with the network because we can't do this alone. Do they have the relationships, not just with, with other students in their school, but with peers outside of their school and with position with people in positions of power do they have that network to actually make a dent in these huge historic problems um that's the ideal you know they go the students go through a program sometimes it's just one year most of our students stick around for the the uh the entire time they're in high school and you know can they experience our program go through a program and then come out the other side able and willing and excited to become leaders in this space where they're tackling really hard problems. Yeah. So I can speak to the, you know, the, of the Colorado youth Congress and what we view as the types of leaders that we're trying to build. And really that comes down to a couple things. One is something we call civic agency. Like, can you take, can you look at a big problem like racial disparities in educational outcomes, like we talked about, or, climate change or the mental health crisis. You know, Colorado has the highest teen suicide rate in the country. Can you take a big, complex problem like that and know how to tackle it? That's the primary way that we define success. Are students able to take a big problem like that to break it down into its system, you know, the system that holds that problem in place and then create a, you know, a plan in order to to um, to begin to solve that problem. The other thing is around social capital. You know, um, are students equipped with the network? Because we can't do this alone. Do they have the relationships, not just with, with other students in their school, but with peers outside of their school and with, position, with people in positions of power? Do they have that network to actually make a dent in these huge historic problems? Um, that's the ideal. You know, they go, the students go through a program. Sometimes it's just one year. Most of our students stick around for the, the, uh, the entire time they're in high school. And, you know, can they experience our program, go through a program and then come out the other side 
able and willing and excited to become leaders in this space where they're tackling really hard problems. That's amazing. And um, I want to actually go back now to the question I wanted to ask before. Uh, in my experience, I was never very involved in politics. Um, growing up, I was mainly a Latin nerd and then a jock. Uh, and so, you know, those are, those are two areas, particularly sports, where folks just tell you what to do and you do it. You don't ask a lot of questions. And so I'm curious, you know, how... How do you find these um, young leaders that you're working with? Are they already showing some sort of interest in changing politics or changing their community? Um, and how do you build that within students who may not feel like they have a voice yet? It's a really solid question. We look for two, it's really two profiles of students. So we'll go into a school and we will make a presentation. We'll also talk to teachers and administrators and we'll ask for the students. One of two types of students or archetypes of students. The first is those that already believe they're leaders. And there are always the students that are hyper involved in stuff. You know, they're part of six different clubs and sports and have a 4.2 GPA. Um, so we do recruit those types of students who already uh, have that as part of their identity, like they're high achievers, they, they believe they're, they're leaders, etc. cetera. Um, but the other type of student in, that we um, really want to recruit are those that feel frustrated about something. And it can be really anything. It can be those that have experienced things in their lives. Like we have a good amount of students in our program now who are either undocumented themselves or part of mixed status families. And they are pissed about the immigration system and the way our current presidential administration is treating immigrants and the narratives that are being told and the very real policies that are, that are happening and how they're impacting immigrant communities. Um, and, you know, the list goes on, but it could be anything from, you know, bullying, mental health, um, poverty and the way job, you know, the, the amount of money their parents are making for how hard they're working, immigration, criminal justice for a lot. It's education is the issue that they come in with because they feel frustrated about the education they're receiving. Um, and so we also ask teachers and we ask students directly, like, are you frustrated? Come do something about it. And then we'll recruit them in, uh, to come into a program. And what do they do? And you talked about this a little bit before, but I'd love to just zoom closer into it. Like, what is that um, experience for leaders as they begin the program, as they're going through it? What's the change? Um, you know, what's the change that they're a part of through the program? So a, a program is based on the community organizing model and approach. In community organizing go back goes back decades and it's really based on selecting the issues that feel relevant to the people and then building power in order to enact change so what that looks like for our program is that students will so we have two pieces of our program one is our regional program where students are coming on saturdays and they're coming from all different schools in the metro denver area and the other piece of our program is a school-based program where we've packaged up a curriculum, we give it to a teacher, and that teacher then facilitates a youth-led campaign at their school. 
So both are, you know, follow a very similar structure and that students will come, they start with identity development, just sharing who they are, sharing where they come from, um, sharing their gifts and talents and frustrations. It's really holding up the mirror to the individual students and having them express who they are and why they're there. Uh, we have a, we do a bunch of community building and then ultimately we start to surface issues that are based in those stories. So the stories you tell, what are the larger, what are the larger issues that that means about our society, about our, about your school, about our community, et cetera. Um, and so students start to, to literally make a list of issues that have been surfaced and then they will select a like select from that list of issues on for the things they want to work on for the year. So this Saturday, for example, we'll have our 115 students come together from our Denver based crew and they have about 25 issues that they will then whittle down from 25 to six. And that really is our um, launching off point for the campaigns. So 25 issues, you know, some of the ones I've already mentioned, education, climate change, immigration, criminal justice, also like homelessness, economic inequality, um, health care. Um, so those types of issues, they will then go through a voting process to narrow it down to six. Once those six issues are selected, then the students will select, you know, they will join one of those six groups. That becomes that forms the basis for the campaigns, and uh, each campaign will have a coach, which we pay. It's a part-time coach that is either an educator, a community organizer, an activist, um, somebody who has experience facilitation. So they are facilitating the group. Each campaign then gets um, not just a coach, but five hundred dollars that they can spend however they would like. Um, sort of our access to our curriculum, access to a network of systems leaders and students across the state. Um, that campaign then begins based on that issue and they do deep research. They start to understand this issue as a system. They talk to both people who are experiencing the problem and those who are quote unquote experts or who have spent their careers studying that issue. Um, and then they will you know, dis- ultimately decide on which lever to pull within the system that they think will then re, you know, get to the, the highest impact. Um, and then they form a, you know, they, they, once they have that objective, then they create a strategy. If this is the, if this is the objective, is this the target that we want? How do we get there? Then they'll form tactics. What do we actually do step-by-step to achieve that objective? That is incredible. And so organized. (laughs) It's organized in theory. In practice, it's a bit messy, to be honest. Well, it sounded good, and that's all that matters. Uh, you, you said that the first thing that they work on is identity development. Why is that an important component of the work for you? Uh, to me, it's everything. That is the basis of living a life of self-determination of knowing who you are. And, you know, in adolescence, this is a critical time for starting to understand, not just understand, but love who you are. And, um, and so we, you know, and, and the other thing I'll say is not really just about you. Like, yes, I will, I, when I have undergone, you know, areas of deep reflection, it has helped me understand 
who I am, what I want to do in this life, how I show up in certain spaces, how I want to show up, the growth areas. Um, that's really self-actualization work. Um, but not only that, but it's critical for social justice work as well, for understanding how you relate to the larger community, to the society around you, and how you want to show up, not just to advocate for issues that might directly impact who you are and your identity, but also as an ally. Um, and so that's really a big piece of what our students are doing is holding up the mirror of saying, you know, of all the ways that I identify racially, socioeconomically, my interests, my passions, you know, my ability, um, what does that mean for not just who I am, but how I want to show up to advocate for issues of justice? That's awesome. Thank you. You know, teaching, I wish I knew a little bit more about myself so I could help students want to do that exploration for themselves and show them there is power in, in trying to go through this self-actualization process, which is a lifelong process, right? Um, so I love that that component just built in. Uh, speaking of identity, though, uh, I want to ask you about yours. And, you know, it sounds like you all spend a lot of time making sure that the, the youth leaders are, are working directly with the communities being impacted. And that's a, a critical point. You are a white man. Um, for all of you who cannot see Sam, Sam is a very attractive white man with blonde hair and blue eyes. He should probably be a model, but he's doing this work instead. Bless your heart. Um, I'm curious, what have you learned working with these communities that are so different from you? And what, what are you still learning about this in yourself? First of all, chill on the flattery, okay? Uh, <laughs> now, I, um, okay, so what does it mean to be a white man leading this work? Uh, first of all, I think it's important to recognize how easy, relatively speaking, it's been to start an organization. Like, is a, you know, I don't remember her name, but is, I think, a feminist writer on Twitter is like, Lord, please grant me the confidence of a mediocre white guy. Um, that's me. You know, and everything from my from birth up to this point, you know, has been um, the the path has been paved. You know, you know, my dad was a doctor; he's a pediatrician. So early on, he spoke a lot of words. You know, to me, he knew about brain development, and so I was always seen as quote unquote smart. When in reality, all I was was born to a wealthy guy in a white family who had a doctorate, you know? Um, and, you know, fast forward, f fucking up as a teenager, getting in trouble with the law and, um, and yet getting a barely a slap on the wrist. And, you know, where some of my students who were doing the exact same stuff in New Orleans got caught up in the criminal justice system and had bonds to pay. And I mean, it was, it's an entire cycle. So I was on the other side of that. Fast forward to starting or wanting to start this organization, um, you know, I, I compare my experience to some women of color who are leading similar organizations in Denver and um, talking to them and they're phenomenal, phenomenal leaders. It took them years to first get funding. Like they were working side hustles and, you know, the, either this was their side hustle or this was their full-time thing and they were just working on the side to make ends meet. Um, 
Whereas for me, I called a guy who I knew from college and he was a wealthy guy. He wrote me a $15,000 check on the spot of saying like, Hey, I had this idea. Um, is that cool? Where do I send the check? And there was no vetting, nothing. And that was not anything to do with my talents or skills. It was just my social capital, like who I knew. Um, so that's the first is like recognizing that and always keeping that in mind that this is not, um, that I've been a beneficiary, you know, of an unjust system. Uh, and what to do with that becomes the next question, you know, as here, you know, here, here I am in this position of authority. What do I do with that? And um, the way I think about it, and this is not perfect, but the way I've thought about it is how do I um, use access? Like, how do I use the spaces that I have access to to push? to get people who I see, typically white people with money, to think a little differently about um, how they operate in the world, where they spend their money. Uh, And that includes funders, which I'd love to talk more about. I haven't, it's it's a nut that I'm still trying to crack, but um, I have relationships with funders who, whose families, and these are family foundations, you know, made their millions, sometimes billions, off the backs of communities of color and, you know, historically just over the past 100, 150 years through exploitative practices have amassed a shit ton of money and now have this foundation that they're spending 5%, sprinkling it on nonprofits, then they can pat themselves on the back and feel super generous. And, um, it's not really shifting, you know, so, uh, so how can I use those relationships to then advocate for what I believe are just ways of doing things and to shift the entire dynamic of funders and grantees. Um, and then of course there's the, the, the last thing I'll say about being a white guy in this work is thinking about either thinking about how power operates within my organization and who makes decisions, who's on, um, not just, like a snapshot of who is in positions of leadership, including my board, including the staff we hire, including students, but also the processes of how decisions are made and to what extent I can decenter myself and um, just be on the back end of supporting the decisions that are made by um, students mostly and particularly students of color in our program. That's a lot. I feel like the the philanthropy conversation is one I want to continue to have. I mean, you know that I I personally work with folks who are raising capital, and to be honest, the the difference between the the path and the friction uh, that um, white people, white men in particular, sort of deal with uh, that in comparison with the folks of color I'm working with or folks who identify as queer that I'm, I'm working with, I mean. It's, it's night and day. And I, I'm not surprised, obviously, none of us are surprised, but I find myself banging my head against the wall a lot of times um, as someone who's supposed to support and coach and, and help guide people through that process, knowing they're doing everything right, um, except for what they look like. Um, oh, I lost you. Uh, for everyone out there, Sam and I are on video, and now we're not, but we still have recording going. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that's like a bigger, a bigger conversation. I do want to ask one tip though, 
um, for folks who may feel like the fundraising experience has been, I don't know, really difficult thus far. What is your advice, um, knowing that you know you're coming from a particular vantage point? What is my advice for raising money in general, or for dealing with? Yeah, for raising money for anyone who's starting um, something and feels that they may be hitting a wall. Like, what what would you offer them to help them maybe understand the landscape better? Well, yeah, let me preface this by saying we are lucky here in Denver because there's a pretty robust funding ecosystem. Like we have a bunch of local foundations and um, especially in the education space. Um, And the Colorado Youth Congress is filling a gap, which before this I think was pretty slim in terms of youth voice and youth leadership. Um, So we have been, I have been, and we have been pretty lucky in that regard. That said, in terms of advice, um, what has worked well for me is just relationship-based fundraising. Uh, yes, like our, we had a fundraising consultant and she created a uh, grants calendar, like a, basically a spreadsheet of all the foundations, both local and national, when their grant deadlines were, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we, for a while, I would just try spitting out grants left and right uh, grant, you know, applications left and right to very limited success because I didn't know any of the program officers. I didn't know the nuance or details of why, um, what they were funding and why. Whereas the most success we've had is with, um, program officers at foundations who I know personally and who I understand. There's understanding on both sides. I understand what their funding priorities are, the impact they're trying to make, and they understand who I am as a leader and who the Colorado Youth Congress is as an organization and what we're trying to do. Um, and I think from there that has opened up other doors. Like the, to me, the most valuable thing has been a funder, you know, when funders introduce me to other funders. And again, like you said, this is a coming from a white guy, I think has a different, I mean, yeah, it's just a different level of access, I think, and privilege, but, um, but I do know this this same strategy has worked for some leaders of color as well, who are um, you know just keeping a relationship based, sitting down multiple times uh, before asking for funding, and then understanding the both the how the how the or, how the foundation works and what the right process is, what the right end is, and then getting an application is through the program officer. Yeah, it's very I think it's actually extremely difficult, but not impossible for different folks to be funded. So I appreciate you saying that um, and letting folks know it works for everyone. It works differently, but generally building relationships is what we have to prioritize in this work. All right, we've got to wrap it up, but I have one more question. And also we need to do a part two that's just like more specific and probably a lot longer. Um, but I wanna, I wanna ask you before you go, you know, for folks who are just starting things out or someone who may want to leave their work and do something in the social impact space, um, what what was, I don't know if there was a moment per se, right? Um, but what are the things that have motivated you to like, one, make this jump? And then two, like what keeps you in the work? It's not glamorous <laughs> in, in any way, um, but yeah. 
how'd you get there? What motivated you to get there? And what keeps you inspired to continue it? It's a profound question. Something I think about, I'm not sure I have a very super clear answer. I mean, what motivates me is I realize I'm just one person who is fighting for creating a more just society, you know, inclusive. Um, and it was just a re- ultimately it came down to like, what role do I want to play? Like, what is it that I feel like I'm equipped to do and, um, and want to do, you know, what is the theory of how I think we get to a place of justice in our society? Um, so that's what motivated me. Ultimately, it was, you know, I saw the way the world is, the way it works, and wanted to do something about it, and then became a question of what. Um, what keeps me in it is seeing impact. I mean, it sounds kind of trite, but my favorite part of the job is working with our students. You know, we had a group of students who um, went to school named after a KKK leader, and it's a school called it was called uh, named after Stapleton, which is a neighborhood here in Denver. And so here this was like a group of students, mostly students of color, uh, some from like some Muslim students from African families, others African-American, you know, generation after generation here based in Denver, um, Latino students, white students, who's super diverse group that went to the school named after a KKK leader. And through our program, that was their campaign was to change the name of their school. And, you know, after a year and a half of struggle, of work, of writing op-eds in the newspaper, of sitting down with administrators and school board members, of petitioning their peers, I mean, you name it, they pulled out every single tactic in the book. Um, but after a year and a half, they got it changed. And um, it's now named after the street name. So DSST Montview is the name of the school. And uh, that is a, you know... It's the power of what is possible that keeps me going. I saw them work their ass off. I saw the um, the opposition, the support, um, the struggle really to get that done. And that was changed in May of last year. And now the students at that school are on fire. Like nothing will stop them from continuing to create change within their school. They have created a Black Student Alliance a Latinx Student Alliance, Asian Student Alliance, White Student Alliance, and now they've created this, this entire infrastructure in their school that is now influencing decisions made at that school from discipline and uniform to budget. And that to me is the power of what's possible when you give students, when you just create the space for students to lead. Um, so that's what keeps me in it is those stories, like, you know, those experiences of knowing that the efforts that we are taking on uh, is making a difference. Awesome. You can hear me. I'm having a little technical difficulty. Okay, there we go. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, too, for just being here. I mean, this is, has been an incredibly insightful conversation. And it's making me think a lot about how I navigate the space. And I know that's going to be true for folks listening. Um, but before you go, uh, where can we find out more about you and Colorado Youth Congress? Yeah, thank you, Jarbo. I really appreciate this opportunity to talk about the work of CYC and just appreciate the work that you do in supporting founders. Uh, okay, so CYC can be found on all major social media platforms. Um, 
CO Youth Congress, or just Google it and you'll find us. Instagram is probably where we're most active, where students are sharing their stories. Um, but also our website, if you want to join up uh, our newsletter to keep up to date, you can join at our website, uh, coyouthcongress.org. And uh, my email is sam at coyouthcongress. And we'd love to share the work we're doing. Our All of our programming and curriculum is open source. So if anybody that's listening is interested in sort of the work that we do and wants to take a closer look or implement something at their school or, you know, in their organization, I would be more than happy to share everything that we have. Uh, so yeah, hit me up. Thanks again for the opportunity to Jogo. Yes, Sam, you're amazing. And to everyone out there, please look up and support CYC. They're doing really cool work. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have a question you'd like us to answer or an idea for a show? Email us at hello at goodbets.co with unplugged in the subject line. If you want to learn more about GoodBets Group and our work, then visit us at goodbets.co. That's G-O-O-D-B-E-T-S dot C-O. Till next time.